Hello and welcome to another edition of Poetry Non-Stop. I'm Patrick Widdis and this week I'm joined by award-winning poet and performer Martin Figura. Martin is a poet of great wit and humour, but when he started writing about his troubled childhood and a dark family secret, it was the start of a journey that changed him as a writer and resulted in some of his strongest work in the acclaimed collection and show Whistle. I asked him how that journey began. Up to that point, I'd been writing, showing off funny. You could have called me a performance poet, I suppose. So I, I wasn't digging too deep. Um, the focus was on being hilarious. And um, unfortunately, my, my childhood wasn't hilarious. It was um, the death of my mother at the hands of my father and all the events that led up to that and the events that followed that. And I hadn't really told anyone about it. And it was someone got it out to me, Magda Russell, in fact, of this parish, and said, you should write about that. And I was nervous about that because I knew the kind of stuff that I was writing at the time, this kind of knockabout satire at best, you could call it, um, wasn't the appropriate vehicle. So I knew I had a journey. To, if I was going to write about it, then I had a journey um, to go in terms of being a writer, really, learning how to write so that I could do it properly and I'd not really told anyone about it so I was nervous about that but decided to have a go and I did a couple of workshops I did one with Galway Canal at Alborough and wrote a terrible poem in that and then there was the MA writing the visual my father was um, a very keen amateur photographer in there well he photographed family there were a lot of family photographs uh, he was quite a good archivist so I had my mother's love letters to him and what have you. So I had quite a lot of source material. I was working as a professional photographer at the time. So I knew about photography. I'd exhibited as a photographer. So I had these photographs as memories. So I had all of this, but I wasn't equipped to do it or to do it justice. And the only way I was going to do it was to do it justice. Yeah, Whistle was a poetry and collection and a show which came first. Definitely the book, because that, that was the kind of bar I set myself to have it accepted by a poetry publisher, because I felt that was the highest bar. And so that was my thing. I wasn't I was going to keep my nerve, I wasn't going to self-publish or do anything like that, because I wanted it to be good. If I was going to sort of tell the story, uh, and for the sake of myself and my mother and the rest of um, the people that were caught up in events... And um, I was thinking of doing an MA and I was thinking of applying to the UEA. And Andrew Porter pointed out that George Surtees was um, doing a writing the visual MA at the art school in Norwich. And that was just perfect. I know George a bit. And it was the ideal vehicle for me because of my source material and interest in photography, which I knew a lot more about than I did about poetry. And so I liked the idea of going to art school as well. And so I went in with my box of photographs and said, these are some of the pictures. I've been printing up my father's photographs to sort of exhibition prints. How did it feel looking at those photos and sharing them for the first time? Well, the photos have been around with me um, all my life and as kind of memento mores. So sharing them and sharing the story felt weird. And, you know, I had anxieties about that and, and they remain, but... Actually, I have to say now, looking back over 10 years, I mean, there's been one or two small things, but generally I was expecting it to be more problematic 
or would you know i don't know uh, i thought it might attract cranks and there's a couple of comments on some of the videos on youtube by idiots but they're idiots but apart from that actually it's been a really good and encouraging and an interesting experience and the other thing about this is the weird thing right so this awful thing happens and there's other awful things around it it gets very dark but while i'm writing all of this from my personal memory bearing in mind that i'm starting from a low base as a writer so i've got a lot of work to do a lot of ground to cover and i was covering that ground the ma was fantastic you know if anyone who says that creative writing courses aren't worthwhile I think that depends. I had a very clear idea about what I wanted from it. I was pretty ruthless about it. I didn't really give a shit about my fellow students. And and it was George I wanted and Andrea Holland and the people they brought in because I was ambitious for the work. Yeah, um, I mentioned you were writing humour before. Um... Yeah. And, you know, there was a couple of times when I was rehearsing the show when it kind of caught me out, but never in performance. And the Zeman show, which also deals with some difficult stuff of a different nature, caught me out once in the showcase. I thought I was going to choke. And apart from that, it's fine. And at the moment, I'm writing a completely fictional adaptation of two other things that are fictions to work with this theatre group and, and creating a world and a person and their life. And I've made myself cry about a complete invention but didn't when writing my own stuff, which is odd. Well, I mean, actually, when you talk about it being a very serious subject, which obviously is, but um, there's a lot of humour in there as well. There is. I'm a funny guy. And and so humour's kind of the main thing, what I am, okay? When I'm looking for... I'm always looking for the joke when I should be thinking about the problem we're trying to solve or anything. I'm thinking there's a joke in this. I tone that down, obviously, for Whistle. But there's a warmth in humour, and um, I was just reading a Lear quote. I see life as basically tragic and futile, and the only thing that matters is making little jokes. So that I kind of justify my flippancy on those grounds. That humour is a really good way of relieving pressure, so it's used really carefully in Whistle and gently but there are moments when it gets really dark and you can just use a little a little joke or a little bit of humor just to let some of the the air out of it or some of the pressure out and then you know and it, i can say there's big laughs and whistle but there's a warmth and humor to it because it's about getting over something and coming to an understanding about something and and surviving and being there up in front of all of you look i'm fine which is interesting so the, the kind of humor is used as a, as a way of, it's almost like comforting the audience. It's quite hard for the audience. You know, people do cry. And, and, but different audiences, sometimes there's a, a couple of early jokes early on that most people who go to it know what's going to happen, um, but not always. And, and people cry, people weep. Some people weep quite early on. And I think, well, if you're crying now, you're really in trouble. And so it's useful like that. But it, it kind of nurses the audience through the... <laughs> The experience makes it sound like a dentist or something. But, you know, they tend to tell me that they're never going to forget that. And it helps kind of nurse them. It lets them know that I'm all right, so it's all right. And it was very sad, obviously, especially for my mother, but also for my father. Yeah, it helps. It helps the audience. Did you have much contact with your father after it happened? Yeah, yeah. I never lost contact with my father. 
he went off to Broadmoor and I was taken to visit him in Broadmoor. So that's quite an experience a couple of times. Uh, and, and then he, he, he was moved from there to Closer and I was to visit him in um, Shelton Hospital, which was near Shrewsbury, where it all happened. And he was, and he drifted in and out of secure unit as, as he got better. He was paranoid schizophrenic. And, and, and he was released in the early 70s. So he was away for about six years and he set up a little life. He got married and he went out to live in Germany, where he was from. Well, he was from Silesia, which is Poland now, but had been Germany. So there's a kind of blur between Poland and Germany. And he went and lived relatively happily, you know. And, and, and it was... It was a tricky relationship, obviously, and he he never got my forgiveness because he he never really apologised. Um, he would say that your mother was no angel. And this is all in the show, and so that's kind of how we left it. But I never my sisters cut off contact with him. He was yeah, he was a difficult sort of I suppose self quite self centred character. But he wasn't. You know, my mother's family kept contact with him. I went to see him and said he was a good and he was a good father and he was a good husband but he got very ill because of because of the war really um his experience there uh, and and through mental health so it kind of wasn't his fault and aside from my mother he paid the biggest price of all of us and so I did stay in contact with him as a short answer there's an interesting the process of the book the poems I like best in the book for me and the strongest poems in the book are where the poems about him being in Broadmoor. Now, I wasn't there with him, so I kind of had to imagine how that must be. And I think this is the crux of writing about this kind of thing, if you write about it well. A lot of people come to these things and they want the world to know it's evidential. And so there's lots of facts. People should know everything. Uh, and so it gets loaded down. There's lots of you know emotion on display. It leaves the read where nothing to do but to go, oh, poor old you. There's no art to it. And Whistle's almost entirely metaphor. Terence Davis, the, the filmmaker from Liverpool, talks about he deals with the memory realism rather than real realism. And, and I firm believe in that, and metaphorical truth as opposed to real truth. Because memory shifts and truth shifts, and it just makes better poems. And I learnt through writing about my father's experience in Broadmoor, which is completely made up. They're, they're kind of partly drawn from research, not really drawn from conversations with him. And we talked a little bit about that, but I didn't like hearing him talk about that because he would feel sorry for himself. And I wasn't going to let him feel sorry for himself in my presence anyway. And But Ron Muick, um, the sculptor who makes these giant scale find photorealism sculptures of um, baby's head, for instance, as big as this room. Well, when his father died, he made a sculpture of his father, who had a difficult relationship with. And it's a beautiful thing. It's on a plinth. It stands really low. And it's only about maybe five foot by two foot, if that. And so it's a small, and it's his father on his back, naked, in fine detail. As you can see the broken toenails and stuff like that. The man at the end of his life. Um, when he was interviewed in the Guardian magazine by Craig Rain, in fact, in making Dear Dad, which is what the sculpture was called. I didn't really get on with my father, but as I made the piece, I found myself thinking about him, caring. And so a kind of an empathy grows out of, and an understanding, because if you do it right, when you write about experience, you don't just write from how it was for you, that's solipsistic. You, you should step aside and think about, well, what about them? You would hope, wouldn't you? But a lot of people don't. And from there goes, I think, 
the best part of understanding, your own understanding, which is there is the question, why are you writing this? Why are you writing about this? What's the point? From a career point of view, it's been very kind to me. But the, the, the real thing, obviously, is to come to an understanding about it. You already know how you felt. And the process of writing adds to that. But stepping aside and looking at it from different contexts helps. And the other thing is to look at it in a historical context. It was tied up with the Second World War. A social history context, what was in the 50s and the 60s, and my parents' aspirations, and what have you, and people coming out of rationing and the war, and buying their own house, things like that. So it's all tied into it. And I think bringing in those other aspects helps widen the thing, so which gives the reader something. And it also helps explain matters to some extent. So how did you go about taking that kind of wider, indirect approach to writing about these experiences? Well, what I should say is I had this spreadsheet. So what I did was I wrote down all the events in a spreadsheet and I put abstract nouns next to them, the words, you know, like grief and loss and what have you alongside them. And that, that was my template. They were going to be my poems. And some of them got written, some of them didn't. But I used the, because I was a photographer, I had the language of photography. So I had that as an asset because it has its own lexicon and in a way, and so they're sort of given metaphors. So I can write about unsayable things really in plain language that that through the language of photography. So, and it wouldn't have to be photography. It could be knitting, it could be anything. It's just that photography, I knew about photography and I kind of knew better how it worked and I was able to use it. And that was really useful. And I could, I could read you a poem that, that does that. I've got three poems in this essay, which is in, in their own words, Contemporary Poets on Their Poetry, um, edited by Helen Ivor and George Surtees. Uh, but it's called Everybody Knows the Troubles I've Seen. And I, I use three poems in here. And when my father, we went back to Poland, he started to behave strangely, become severely mentally ill which led up to the death of my mother. But we still, and we kind of as kids, we didn't know this was going to happen, but we know there was problems. But as a kid, you only have your own family kind of to gauge on. So we thought, you know, they argued a lot. But we still went on these outings and he still took photographs that he set up. My mother was very socially ambitious. She was from the slums of Liverpool, being evacuated to Shrewsbury in the war. And we ended up living in Shrewsbury because that's what she wanted for herself. And there's this photograph of myself. She would dress me up ridiculously. So I'm in knee white socks, sandals, cardigan, a collar and tie, my hair in a wave. It's sort of target on my back for the bullies. And there I am with my mother who's wearing a hat and white gloves outside uh, a Tudor cottage with literally with roses around the door. It's not our house. So this is called a glove. My mother and I pose in Sunday best in front of a cottage with roses around the door. She dreams it is our house where white gloves will not be smudged or snagged on a thorn and be left with a pinprick of blood. I could print this photograph so dark there would only be her hand on my shoulder. So that uses the process of photography and some small detail. There's hardly any facts in Whistle. It's kind of nearly all told through metaphor. But I was able to, because I, I, I kind of started off trying to write like Raymond Carver. It turns out that's really difficult. And George would say, you're just bringing me facts. And this became a real problem for me because I wanted to stick by my 
story. This happened, but it happened. It happened, and people say that to me on workshops when I say, "Yeah, I know." But this, and I had this. I'd had this thought as a child. We were first taken in by our Uncle Eddie and Auntie Ethel, who were horrible. And they were quite strict, and they abandoned us after two years. They went to live in Canada, didn't say anything. We'd been shipped off to boarding school. And I simply wasn't collected from school at the end of term. So, they're, you know, they're not the most sensitive people in the world. And I, I, co- I protected their identity by calling them Philip and Margaret, which I took from Angela Carter's Magic Toy Shop as a kind of joke that only I would get. But I had this Meals Were Taken in the Morning Room, which um, not M-O-U-R, but M-O-R-N. And at the end of every day, and I was nine, ten-year-old boy, there would be a reckoning of the day's misdemeanours over the meal. So meals were pretty awful because I was a 10-year-old boy and we get up to all kinds of shit, terrible things. And so I was held to account over those. So they were a sort of dreaded experience. And I started having thoughts about being eaten, which I never really shared with anyone because it's weird. And I knew nothing of metaphor or there's the Tantalus myth, isn't there? And I knew none of that. But I thought, well, I've never forgotten that. 40 years later, shall I write it down? So I did. And for the first time, it kind of pierced me. It got through to me. I felt something. And I hadn't felt anything yet in writing about this stuff. So I'll read that. The family sits around the table, ready for the meal, which is me, trussed up at the ankles and wrists, cooked to a golden finish like a chicken. Uncle Philip, as head of the family, sharpens the knife, carves slices of flesh from my thighs and deftly transfers them to oven-worn plates. Now everyone gets stuck into the broccoli and potatoes. They are pouring gravy, spooning stuffing from my ribcage. So that obviously didn't happen. But big tip here ends on a, a, a big image. People spooning stuffing from my ribcage. But it said how it felt. It's a metaphor. Who'd have thought? But I went to crew secondary modern and no one mentioned metaphors. And I, I kind of thought, well, I'm onto something here. That, that's it. So I went on and used the language of photography. And also it kind of started to bring things like motifs into it. So there's a table, which is like a sacrificial altar. And there's a lot of tables and a lot of mouths in the book, which you kind of don't realise when you're doing it. But they're motifs, and the motifs help if you're writing a long sequence. But essentially it's one poem, a sequence of poems, really. In the show it helps, you know, they kind of tie things together. So that was the punctum, so I'll just sort of talk about the punctum. Roland Barthes' book, Camera Lucida, is his French theorist who loved his mum. And he found this photograph of his mother when she was a little girl, and he only discovered it after her death. And with it came the realisation that um, her death implied his own. But he talked about the punctum and the studium, and the studium is this thing, book learning, what we know about the history of art, the history of poetry, all of that, what we bring to a subject when we write about it or read about it. But the reason you keep a poem or you connect to a poem or a piece of art or anything is the punctum, and that's the thing that pierces you, that evokes an emotion, Mm. be it a powerful emotion, be it a good one or a bad one. And so I started going down my spreadsheet and looking for my punctums, the things that really stick to you, that have stayed with you for whatever reason. The other thing I kind of wanted to talk about, because we talked about wider contexts, and I went over in the early 60s to Poland, to Silesia with my father, and P.G. Woodhouse was interned there during the war, Upper Silesia. 
and uh, to which he said, my God, if this is Upper Silesia, what must Lower Silesia be like? It's an industrial wasteland. It's like kind of New Jersey with um, coal mines. And I remember walking along by these coal slag heaps and I found this photograph with window frames that look like crosses. So this is kind of when you start writing, it's like finding material. It's like going into a shop, like it's one of those supermarket sweeps where you go and gather all your your materials and so you're looking for things that are essentially you're hunting for metaphors anything that you might use to to say about that experience and you won't use all of them and part of the my process is sifting do quite heavily research stuff a lot of the time and that's difficult because as i've already said facts weigh down poems so you've got to find this sort of thing that gets you going the punctum but there's this photograph of a solitary road and these bleak flat houses flat roofed houses and behind them are these towering black hills coal slag heaps and these everything's dark apart from the window frames which all look like white crosses and so and this is kind of a way of bringing in that wider context I was talking about and the history that my father emerged from he was fought into the German army via the Hitler youth he fought at Monte Cassino when he was only when he was a teenager he nearly starved to death in the Alps so all of these are background to this so I'm going to read that poem it's called Coal caverns of fire growl deep underground crack open the contaminated surface so the murmur of voices can escape the bones of dukes and peasants, bohemians, prussians, mongol raiders and moravians are pressed tight into a fault line as thin as a flag. The flag is the colour of blood cells. Behind the buckling crosses of window frames, old men are dismantling clocks on kitchen tables, looking for providence amongst cogs and spiders. And the black hills will join the sky and rain, will pour down and bury this place kind of key poem in the book mm. it's the foundation it's about fascism and the rise of fascism but it, it throws it into a wider context i think it could be a poem now it could be like what's happening in hungary or what's happening in america or what's happening here this is a kind of warning signs it's just that there was the kind of silesia has been conquered by nearly everyone it's kind of geographically there between east and west uh, and north and south and and um has always been put upon and it's got this industrial thing so i used all of those things to kind of suggest like this it is where packs my packs a lot into a small space it does it does so there's all of that history again i don't know whatever happens to anyone to all of us i so i do workshops i've done a couple recently with people and people talking say, oh but it's just me it's just a small thing i photograph ex-miners in the northeast in their working men's club if few years ago now but they said well why is anyone interested in us and I said but no you were part of the sort of minor strike this kind of massive shift in our social and political history you were parts of the sort of the key elements of what makes this country what it is now and when I go oh yeah and people often say like I made oh no I got nothing's ever happened to me it's boring and then a couple of seconds later well the first animal I ever rode on was a pig and then, and then you inquire into that and the turns there's a whole load of stuff behind that and you just like think right okay when was this what was else was happening in the world and there'll be a relationship between those things and uh, you've got a writing exercise which kind of explores that it is it's a kind of so that was how i went about it largely through spreadsheets and photography 
But constantly in writing, it's that how do you get over the, the facts, especially if you, you know, either the facts of your personal experience or your research. So this is taking an abstract noun. So I'd have all these abstract nouns next to my thing and making it concrete, I suppose. And Stephen Dobbins has already done this, you know, the whole book, um, where he, he writes about abstract nouns. You know, he gives them life, I suppose. So if we... I'll read a poem. It's Stephen Dobbins, Sloth. If you are running, now you are walking. If you are walking, now you are sitting down. I enter your body as sunlight enters a forest after a day of rain. You are on your way to a palm reading. A new job testing Italian sports cars. An axe murder. Do it tomorrow. I am a cat rubbing against your ankles, the hot bath after an afternoon of chopping wood. See me as a feather bed, red and blue silk cushions in a warm room. Lie down on me, lie down on me. Whatever it was, it wasn't important. Something about someone living or dying or moving to Phoenix. Something small, no heavier than the weight which now presses lightly against your eyelids. Close them. Tomorrow might be a hard day. It's kind of like hypnotherapy, isn't it? In yeah. fact, it's exactly like hypnotherapy. So it's in the voice of sloth. So what I'm saying to you is that if there's an event or a relationship, whatever it is that you found too challenging to write about or simply have tried and failed to kind of get onto paper how it felt really, then here's the thing. Look for the punctum, the thing that pierces you, and try and give it a, an abstract noun for a name. This is right as an abstract noun, so you could write as anger, shame, blame, grief, or even joy. So, but an abstract noun, a strong feeling, you know. So if you, you know, if you've been tempted to write about your grandchildren and found even you couldn't sort of deal with the sentimentality of that, then this might be your chance. So. Yeah, take the abstract noun and write in its voice or write to it or make it an object. Any of those things and, and see. And you might want to take a few of those facts off the shelves as you go around the event that you're writing about, but not all of them. It's not evidence. You're not giving evidence in a court of law. Yeah, it's a really useful one, I think, because uh, they're the kind of experiences which uh, draw a lot of people to writing poetry but they are difficult to write about both uh, technically writing a good poem but also emotionally actually facing up to those and uh, I think you know this technique it means you can sort of deflect that a bit and sort of write about it indirectly. Yeah. You get to say the unsayable as well you can say things that are just too too difficult but be careful out there kids because you know it, it's not everyone's always ready you know I, I've seen people who've You've written about something and it's, you know, they're not ready. So you, you have to be careful with yourself, treat yourself kindly and be gentle. But it can, be, you know, be really helpful to come to some help you understand the experience and maybe then help, ideally, other people. Yeah, and uh, you might find yourself going in a few different directions with this. Um, when I tried it, um, I basically oh, yeah. just started off making a list of those kind of experiences and then think about how 
they made me feel. And one feeling which was attached to a lot of them was like a feeling of isolation or trying to fit in to a situation where I perhaps didn't feel I belonged. And then I kind of was thinking how I could express that. And then I found myself uh, thinking about a news story I'd read recently about some flamingos which has been, had been rescued. So I sort of ended up writing about those two things at the same time. Anyway, this is what I came up with. Uh, it's called Flamingo. I'm free, stuck in the mud as the African sun bakes my snowy plumage. I was raised by light bulbs and rubber tubes. Found comfort in featherless hands, was snatched from the jaws of wild dogs and meerkats as my beak strained to break my petrified shell. My world grew from cardboard box to carpet and now this. As I jostle with these prawn cocktail suited question marks, I try not to break eye contact as I check the two crumpled pages of notes tucked under my wing. I can't even blush or make out a single word of rising chatter. It's really good. It's, it's really interesting how that you kind of went from your feeling to, to um, flamingos. Because I think often most poems are, are two disparate things brought together. A mashup, I think the young people call it. And I think writing about feeling slightly at odds with everyone else is, uh, has a ready audience in poetry. But it's a really good way of coming at it, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I found um, the uh, technique useful. I think it's sort of a good addition to the writer's toolbox. Um, and uh, it was an interesting poem to write. And um, I think everyone can have a go of this technique. They have the experiences that they can apply to it. So um, have a go and do share the results because it would be great to uh, read them. Yeah, and I think is that if you've got in mind, an idea for a poem in mind, think about it a lot, the event, and then go about your business until you spot something like a meerkat or a flamingo or a can of beans on a supermarket shelf that will give you a way in that becomes the sort of metaphorical brick wall. Sound advice there from Martin Figura, bringing to an end a fascinating discussion with some hard-hitting poetry. Do have a go at his writing exercise. It really does help you address the kind of feelings and life experiences we're all drawn to write about in a much more effective and original way. You can find details of the exercise and other topics discussed on the website poetrynonstop.com. As always, please send poems in response to Martin's exercise or any of the other exercises featured so far to poetrynonstop at gmail.com or share on social media using hashtag poetrynonstop. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Please share with your friends, like on social media and write a short review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a new podcast and your support makes all the difference. If you would like more tips on writing poetry, then please consider purchasing my book, also called Poetry Nonstop. You can find it on Amazon or there's a link on the website. Join me again for another episode next Thursday. Thanks again for listening and keep writing. Next week, Jenny Pagden, whose debut 
pamphlet called Beck Explores Her Experiences of Postnatal Psychosis, joins me to talk about the inexpressible in poetry. I cupped my hands. The petals fell into them lightly. I opened my lips. A tune emerged like a freed wren. It was warm in the park and the magnolias were candelabra. Thank you, I called in no particular direction.